thank, thank you, Matt, yeah. I think, for that yeah. time together. No. Uh, there's nothing more enjoyable for me than watching Matt do announcements and watching them evolve between first and second service. Hey, uh, Luke chapter 17. Today we're going to get right into it. So if you have your Bible, grab it. If you want to use the Purack Bible, Luke 17. That's page 851, I believe, if you're using one of those Bibles. As you turn and get ready for that. Um, I don't do this too often, but every now and then... Uh, there's, you have a guest or something, and we, I have some friends, uh, Amy and I have some friends who are here from Ventura, who came all the way up just to be with us, and, uh, and they're the Bovas, and they're over here, and they're kind of this, they take up a whole pew, really, they double the size of our worship numbers at 11, um, and here's a cool, interesting fact about the Bovas, so talk to them afterwards, uh, they have six children, which in Cedar Mill standards is just about average, actually, but, but here's the cool thing about their kids, is they, five of them are the exact same age, so they're like all twins or quintuplets or something. So that's, that's a cool fact. And, um, and so talk to Joe. He's the one who seems really tired there in the middle. And um, now, welcome. Great to have you guys with us today. Uh, it's always fun to welcome out-of-town friends and family members to be with the in-town friends and family members. All right, let me pray. God, help us with this message today. Enlighten it and enliven it in our souls and minds and use it to change us this morning. Um, we want to be your people and we want to soak in what you have to teach us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our passage today, Jesus uh, gets right into it, and he does so uh, through a question. The Pharisees come, and they ask him a question, and the way Jesus so often, so masterfully does, he uses questions to teach about the things of God, specifically um, the kingdom of God. And, and so the Pharisees come, it says this in Luke 17, verse 20, once... On being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied. And so, so this question is posed to Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's been teaching and talking about the kingdom of God. It's actually the thing Jesus talks about more than anything else in scripture. 43 times in the Gospel of Luke alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And here's his basic message around the kingdom. It has come near. It has come upon you. It is here. It has arrived in me. It is in your presence. Now, we have to understand that as Jesus makes this claim about the kingdom, he's talking to people who already have a pretty well-formed idea and thought about what the kingdom of God looks like, what it will look like when it arrives. You see, for us... A kingdom is something that's sort of vague, it's sort of distant, it's not a reality that we live in, but these were people who lived in and amongst kingdoms all the time. In fact, 167 years before Jesus, in 167 BC, Israel, they were not ruled by Rome, they were ruled by another great empire, the Seleucid Empire, and In this year, a revolt started and a a Jewish leader by the name of Judas Maccabeus rose up and he led a revolt and this tiny little nation uh, um, of these people defeated this this massive empire and Israel won its freedom and independence. They broke free from the oppression and injustice of this, this giant empire and they felt like this is the moment. The kingdom of God is returned to us. But then... In 63 BC, 63 years before Jesus, so this is all recent history for Jesus and his hearers, another great empire shows up on the scene. And that empire was, of course, the Roman Empire. And if you thought the Seleucids were nasty, the Romans were worse. And so oppression and injustice and taxation and abuse show up in spades for these folks. 
But because of what had happened with Judas, all the people um, in Israel had this idea. Someday, the kingdom of God will come, and a Messiah will show up, a Savior will show up, the Christ will show up, and he will, in the same way that Judas delivered us from the Seleucids, he will deliver us from the Romans. And, And that freedom will not just last for a few years, or for a few decades, or even for a few centuries. That kingdom will have no end. And so in their minds, the kingdom of God was coming, and when it came, it would come with force, it would come with power, and control, and rule, and reign, and thrones, and soldiers, and swords. And so now Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, the kingdom has come. It's come in me. It's here in my presence, right? And the people are like, whoa, okay, this is the moment. This is the big moment. The problem was this. They didn't see any of the stuff they thought they'd see. I mean, like, where are the the swords and the chariots and the, the powers and the Romans are still very much here and mistreating us. And so... The Pharisees come to Jesus, and this is not just an innocent question. This is not just a round of cool Jeopardy end times trivia. This is an attack. This is an assault. This is the Pharisees trying to make a mockery of Jesus in front of the people in the way that they always did. So Jesus, they say, we keep hearing you talk about your kingdom. Snicker, snicker, nudge, nudge, right? When's it coming? Like, when's it showing up? Because, frankly, we don't see it. And Jesus will now take this question and he will begin to teach about who he is and what his kingdom looks like and what it looks like to walk in it as his followers. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, that little phrase there at the very end of that section, in your midst, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is in your midst. There's so many layers to that. But ultimately, at the very core of what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that there is this amazing, infiltrating power of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom he has come to bring is not something you can kind of pin down to a certain nation or ruler or uprising or event, but that it's way more subtle, it's way more subversive than that. It's actually in your midst. And it's in the midst, not just of of one kingdom, but in the midst of every single kingdom in this world. Every single kingdom that rules and reigns in this world is now being infiltrated subversively by the kingdom of God. Think about all the, the kingdoms in our world. Think about the nations throughout the centuries. In every single one of those kingdoms, there has been Christ followers, kingdom bringers, God's agenda has been at work underneath and behind the scenes. But let me bring it down. Let me make it a little closer to home for you today. Some of you go to work and you enter the kingdom of your company every Monday morning, right? You enter into the sphere where your company rules and reigns. Maybe it's the kingdom of Nike or the kingdom of Intel or the kingdom of the Beaverton School District or the kingdom of fill-in-the-blank, wherever you work. And friends, when you go there and you let the Spirit of God drive your attitudes and actions and decisions, when you live at work as if Jesus is king, the kingdom of God breaks through. It's in your midst. And all of a sudden, your workplace has been infiltrated by the kingdom of God. You maybe have not thought about it this way before, but your family is a little kingdom and it's ruled 
by certain dynamics and forces that you are sometimes aware of and sometimes unaware of. But friends, when we invite Jesus into our families and we ask him to guide the way we talk to one another and treat one another and the way we use our family's time and energy and resources, when Jesus begins to rule and reign in our homes, the kingdom infiltrates all those little kingdoms. It's in our midst. And there's, a, and there's another layer to this I want to point out to you. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst, that can kind of sound a little new agey, right? Like, it's just kind of floating. The kingdom is in your midst. Ooh. And yet, in the, it does sound that way, doesn't it? Just say that. Ooh. Um, but there's actually in the Greek, this is actually a very active and in, in invitational and challenging statement. Some commentators suggest, and I think they may be right, that a better translation here would actually be within your grasp. The kingdom of God is not just in your midst, but it's within your grasp. Like you can reach out and grab it. It's now available to you. You can receive it. This life world-changing power is now available to you in Jesus. You see, he's confronting us with a decision here. And the decision is, will you believe, will you trust, will you follow, will you let God now in Christ be the ruling force in every area of your life? Will you, are you willing to step into a place where the kingdom is working in you and then through you to advance God's kingdom subversively in every kingdom you come into contact with in this world? Now, some of you may be wondering, like, we keep talking about kingdom. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is simply a sphere where a king is in charge. And the kingdom of God is really no different. The kingdom of God is a realm, a sphere in which God's in charge. It's the realm in which everything is the way God wants it to be because God is king. Right? Do, do you agree with God being king? Is God king? Do we live in the kingdom of God? Well, kind of. I mean, where do we live? We live, well, there's a lot of good answers to that question, right? Portland, Oregon, the United States, the world, all of them will do. Do any of those places meet this definition? Everything there is the way God wants it to be. No. So, so we don't live in the kingdom of God. We do or we don't. Make up your mind, church. We kind of do and kind of don't. It's actually a trick question, and I know you guys don't trust me anymore on these kind of things, but um, it's important for us to understand the kingdom of God comes in two phases. The scholars call this the, uh, the already but not yet nature of the kingdom. And so the first, the already part of the kingdom is the part that Jesus talks about here in the opening verses. He says the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's arrived. It's been inaugurated, officially launched and introduced, thrust into our world. The inauguration of the kingdom comes with Jesus, his first coming, right? He brings it, but the kingdom of God isn't fully realized yet. And so someday when Jesus comes again, his second coming, the kingdom will be consummated. It will be fulfilled. It will be perfected. It will be manifest completely in our world. So we have the first coming of Jesus, the inauguration of the kingdom, you now the kingdom in your midst. And then we have... The second coming, the consummation of the kingdom. And Paul talks about this in Philippians when he says, you know, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom fully realized. It's not 
how it is today. Does every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? No, we know people that's not true of, but someday they will. John talks about this in, in the book of Revelation when he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because everything will be the way God wants it to be. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for, listen how that verse ends, for the old order of things, the old kingdoms that used to be in charge, the kingdoms of this world, have passed away. They're gone now. They've been torn down. And so, we look at this timeline. First coming, second coming, inauguration of the kingdom, consummation of the kingdom. Where are we on this timeline? Yeah, we're in the middle. A brave person who will still answer my questions. Great job, Glenn. Thank you. Um, Yeah, we're right in the center of it. And scholars call this the inter-advental age. And they call it that, I'm just trying to give you kind of a fun technical term to... Uh, this morning, because the first advent is the first coming of Christ. It's when he came the first time. That's why we celebrate the season of advent right before Christmas, because he's coming. The second advent is when he'll come again, and so we're in between the advents. We're in the inter-advental age. Um, This is a fancy way of saying like between first and second coming of Jesus. And in our passage today... The reason the Pharisees are mocking Jesus, the reason the people are a bit confused, is because they fully have been expecting the consummation of the kingdom. The full and complete rule and reign of God to come thundering into this world, wipe out the Romans, take away all the injustice and oppression that they're experiencing, and for things to be made exactly how God wants them to be. So Jesus comes and says, I'm bringing the kingdom, and they're like, well, we don't see it. We don't see it. And so now Jesus is going to talk to us, talk to them, talk to you and me about what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus in this era between the advents. And it's really, really cool stuff. And so now Jesus will turn his attention to his followers. Uh, One more thing. One of the things he actually says here um, to the uh, Pharisees his response is a bit of a slap in the face. And what he says is, you long for me to teach you about the consummation of the kingdom, and yet, and yet, you can't even see the inauguration of the kingdom, even when it stands right in front of you. So why would I waste my time talking with you about the consummation when you can't even see the inauguration? And that's why Jesus in this passage now turns from the Pharisees to talk to his followers. Verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will long to see the consummation of the kingdom, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man on his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Friends, in verse 22, Jesus says, in this era, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be suffering. What does he say in verse 25? At the very end there, he says, before the consummation happens, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. The primary characteristic of the, of the age that we live in now is suffering and rejection. And sometimes that feels really foreign to us as American Christians. But it shouldn't because we hear about this stuff and we read about it all the time, even in our nation these days, right? There's suffering. We see that on a national level. We also experience that on a very personal level. 
We experience the, the suffering and the struggle. And by the way, why is there suffering and struggle in this world? Is it because the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of darkness, are, are winning? Are they beating the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God has come and it's now advancing in this world, right? But are the kingdoms of darkness winning and that's why the news is so bad? No. No, actually, it's because when evil and darkness and injustice and oppression are pressed, when they are attacked, what do they do? They fight back. And that's what's happening in the era that we live in right now. As the kingdom presses forward and as, as, the, as the kingdom of God advances, evil and injustice are rebelling and they are fighting. And we see that kind of on a national, worldly news level, but we also see it on a personal level and we feel it in our own souls. You see, the truth is this. Every single person in this room experiences this. Some of you here are are struggling and you're struggling right now. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction or you struggle with temptation or you struggle with your temper or maybe you struggle with insecurity. Maybe there's an attitude in your life that's out of whack or relationship that's gone sideways. You struggle with depression or anxiety. Some of this room are dealing with a health issue that seems to have no end in sight or the loss of a loved one is plaguing you, someone you lost way too soon. Friends, all of these things cause us to long for the consummation of the kingdom. They cause us to long for the day when God will make things the way he longs for them to be, when he will make them them right again and he will wipe the tears from our eyes and there'll be no more suffering or pain or injustice or oppression. We long for those things. And Jesus says that is normal. You should expect that in this era because things are not the way God wants them to be right now. And Jesus says that In this era, in this inter-advental era, there's going to be this temptation that you feel to kind of look forward and long for and and reach out for and even get fixated on the day when Jesus will return and things will be made right. We see this all the time in people. We see this all the time in Christians. They get really focused on what? The second coming. When Jesus will come back again. And that's how you get all these weird predictions. That's how you get people saying weird stuff like, Michelle Gorbachev's birthmark is a sign of the beast. Right? Do you remember that? Anyone else in here old enough to remember that? Or just me? Yeah, you get weird predictions from Christians who get focused on the consummation of the kingdom. And Jesus says, no. He says, he says very clearly here, do not go running after all that stuff. Don't get sidetracked by it. Do not let fixation on his second arrival displace your calling to fully embrace a life defined by his first arrival. You see, that's where your focus should be. On the kingdom that's here and now and within your grasp and offered to you today. That's the focus of a follower of Jesus in this era. Why? He says, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Friends, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, you can't miss it. Like, don't be worried if you're going to miss it. Don't feel like you have to spend a lot of time studying and figuring out when and where and how it's going to happen. Friends, Jesus himself says, when it happens, you'll know it happened. Like, you cannot miss it. I'll never forget this, this trip I was on. I was a youth pastor in Minnesota, and, and, and my, a bunch of students and myself had gone up to the very northern edge of North Dakota, right on the Canadian border. And we were on a Native American Indian reservation up there, and we were working with some of the people and the children. And one night, in the middle of the night, 
We were all awoken from our tents and we came pouring out and the entire night sky was ablaze with lights and flashes and swirls and sparks like I have never seen in my life. And just to be real honest and transparent, there was probably a good 45 second period, which doesn't seem like that long of a period, but it really was a long time, 45 seconds, where I was pretty sure that Jesus was coming back. I mean, I literally am standing there and I'm thinking, this is it. What else could this be? I was just a physics major. I shouldn't have known any better. But, but like, this has got to be the... And, and it was like a glorious moment for me too because, you know, what better time for Jesus to come back than when you're on a mission trip? <laughs> like, we all kind of have this fear that Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be right in the middle of, like, our worst sin. And here I am on a mission trip leading kids and it's like, this is awesome, God. Perfect. Take me now, right? As it turns out, it was just uh, the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights. And apparently when you're really north, they're not the northern lights, they're just the lights. Like they're all over. Amazing, amazing. But friends, the point was this. You couldn't miss it. I mean, the entire night's sky was ablaze. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, you're not going to miss my return. When I come back, everyone's going to know This was a follower of mine. Don't put your focus and energy into the when and where of my return. You don't need to decode the Bible or unpack every symbol of revelation in order to catch the second coming of Christ. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Hear this. If you have embraced the inaugurated kingdom, if you're living into and for, and if you are fueled by the inaugurated kingdom, the consummated kingdom will embrace you. You don't have to discover it. Verse 26, just as it was, Jesus says, in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. The days when I return, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and soulful rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Friends, here is what Jesus is saying here. In the days leading up to his return, do you know what people are going to be doing? The things of normal life. Eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, buying, selling, planting, building. What is that stuff? It's the normal stuff of life that the people in that society did all the time. They're just living life. You know, if if Luke was specifically writing to us here today, he would probably have written something like this. Just as it was in the days of suburban Portland, people were... Driving and texting and shopping and texting and working and texting and hiking and texting and camping and binge watching shows on Netflix and playing weird internet games like Pokemon Go. <laughs> Which, by the way, I just need to put time out here and say, so can someone help me? I don't, I still don't quite understand the Pokemon Go thing. My kids have tried a couple times to explain. And so if you're in here and you're under 30, come see me after. I need a tutorial. If, if you're lost, You're not the only one. But the point is this. We're we're all just sort of doing the things that people do in our society. It's just normal life that can actually distract us. It's just everyday living 
doing the things that everybody else in society is doing that can get in the way of us reaching out and embracing the kingdom life that Jesus offers to us now. Isn't that true? Don't you find that to be the case? It's not, you know, most of the time it's not major sinful things that are getting in the way of you living for the kingdom. It's just living in society and doing all the things that the people in our society are doing. And we don't necessarily think of them as bad, awful things. But if we stop and pause and thought about like God coming down and having like a heart-to-heart with us, maybe he'd say, yeah, you're engaged in all these things that everybody else in society is doing, the way you're spending your time and resources and energy. And it's not necessarily really bad stuff, but it's It's distracting you. It's leading you away from fully leaning into and embracing the inaugurated, available to you, in your midst, within your grasp, kingdom that Jesus has come to offer you right now. We cannot ever just let society define for us how we should live, how we should spend our time and energy. Middle school, high school students, let me just offer this to you and then I'm going to hope your parents pick up on it, right? This is a sneaky way of talking to your parents through you but you can grab someone from this too. There's such a temptation, I think, to live this way. What are all my friends doing? How are all my friends dressing, talking, acting, spending their time, right? Because that should certainly indicate how I should be able to or how I should want to live my life. But friends, if we do that in our society, we are going to be led away from the kingdom. We're going to be distracted. I mean, think about the societies of Noah and Lot, We know both of these societies were not good ones, right? It wasn't like these people were just engaged in holy, righteous stuff for God. I mean, God comes and destroys them. They are so bad. They are so evil. They are so far off track. They are involved with so much injustice and oppression and unrighteousness that God says, we just got to like, like wipe the slate clean here. And yet I can only imagine that if you were a person living in those cultures, living in those places, cities, it would have just seemed normal because everyone was doing it. Everyone was living that way. It's just normal. Everybody's doing it. Societal living that generally leads us away and distracts us from embracing the kingdom. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 4. Listen to these words. The worries of this life i.e. the things in this life that get our time and mental attention The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. They come in and they rob us of the kingdom work God so wants to do in and through us. And now Jesus will take this warning, this warning not to be distracted, not to miss out on the inaugurated kingdom available to you today, and he will drive it a layer deeper if you've even thought he could. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you that on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. See, what Jesus talks about here is how entangled we are in the things of this world versus the things of the kingdom. Roofs in the ancient world were kind of like our 
patios or decks. People spent a lot of time on their roofs. Why? Well, because they lived in Palestine in like the first century and they didn't have air conditioning. So you don't want to hang out inside. And so they hung out outside on their roofs. And generally there were two staircases down from your roof, one that led outside and one that led back inside into your home. And so what Jesus is saying here is when the kingdom comes, when it's consummated, don't be the kind of person who's like, hold up, God, there's some stuff I really care about inside that I want to grab, right? Like, don't care about your worldly possessions so much that you're going to put off the kingdom for that stuff. In the same way, workers would go to work in the field, and um, they were like Oregonians. They dressed in layers, so they had like an inner cloak and an outer cloak. And so in the morning, they'd have the outer cloak on because it was chilly, and then as the day got warmer, they would take it off and lay it by the side of the field. And Jesus again says, you know, when the kingdom comes, when it's consummated, when God comes back and his, his kingdom is fully offered to you, don't be the kind of person who says, God, hold up, let me grab my coat. Right? Like, and the idea here is, what do you really value? What is your life really about? And maybe the key phrase, the key sentence of the entire passage is this one little short sentence right here. And the, and the uh, commentators and the translators do a good job of highlighting it by putting an exclamation point at the end. Here it is. Remember Lot's wife. It's not a question. It's not like, remember Lot's wife? No, that's why it's like, remember Lot's wife. Say that with me. Remember Lot's wife. Do you guys remember Lot's wife? Do you remember the story? What happens to her? Well, if you, if you don't remember, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. Lot and his crew are living in Sodom and God comes and he's going to judge the, this city along with a neighboring town for just all the unrighteousness there. He's going to bring justice He's going to right the wrongs that have been done, but he's going to deliver Lot and his crew from the city. And so they are delivered from the city, and as they flee, the cities are being destroyed, but they're told this, do not look back. Do not even look back. And I've always kind of felt like Lot's wife gets a raw deal here. It seems like a weird story. I'm going to be honest, our pastor's allowed to say this stuff. Because if it's me, and I'm fleeing, right? Run! Fire from heaven! I'm running faster than that, probably. And then, like, it's like Armageddon, and, like, the fire's falling from heaven, and there's, like, you know, people screaming and stuff. Wouldn't you be a little tempted to kind of give a little glance back? Like, what does that look like? How's this really going down? And so Lot's wife gives a little glance back, like, whoa! And, and then, boom, she gets turned into a pillar of salt. Pastor Matt told me this Sunday that she got assaulted. <laughs> and I was like, that's a good title for this sermon. Don't get assaulted. Um... But, but I think we missed the point of the story. Because what's really being communicated in this story is what Jesus is trying to communicate as well. Is, is Lot's wife's look back to the city isn't just out of curiosity or out of fear that maybe the fire's catching up with her. No, it's an indication of where her heart was. It's an indication that she was holding tightly to the things of this world, to the things of that city, that she did not want to let go of the things of this world, that she was not able to release the things of this world to embrace the kingdom of God and all that he had to offer her. Her heart is entangled in the world. Not just in her possessions, but in everything else that the world in that city had to offer and did offer her. And so, friends, the question here, the challenge here from Jesus is this. Where is your heart today? Is your heart entangled in the things of this world? Is that where you find value and meaning and joy and fulfillment and hope in the things of this world? 
And the stuff that you have and the accomplishments that you've been able to achieve and the relationships you've formed and the reputation that, that you've sort of forged for yourself. Is that where your hope is? Is that where your satisfaction? I mean, do you have a, do you have too tight of a grip on the things of this world? Or, or like what Jesus asks us to do in this passage, are you holding the things of this world so loosely that when God comes and offers the kingdom, you can set them down? You can move forward without looking back, without longing for the things of this world that will pass away. You see, there's this, these, these people who, like, two are in bed and one goes and one stays. And the idea here is, is that it's hard to tell where people's hearts are. It's hard to tell where people's hearts are truly entangled. And so that today, let me ask you this question. What do you have too tight of a grip on in your life? Luke chapter 17, verse 33. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He says, If you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you'll lose it. But if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms. If your life is is rooted in and clung to the things of this world, then your life is going to pass away because everything in this world is going to pass away. But if your life is rooted in and if you are clinging to the things of God, then your life will go on forever because God goes on forever. Is there anything that's preventing you from clinging fully to God and the kingdom that he offers and wants to give you this morning? Well, as we finish up this passage, there's kind of this, this very last verse. Um, and the disciples come back to Jesus after he's talked to them about the kingdom that's available to them now and how to live in this era and what it looks like to be people, followers of Jesus in this era between first coming and second coming, inauguration and consummation. And they, they, they come to Jesus and they say, Where, Lord? Verse 37 says, The disciples respond, Where, Lord? They ask. And Jesus replies, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And that seems like a pretty clear response to me. And so we'll end with that. Father, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the elders were actually taunting me this week. Like, what are you going to do with that? Um, and I'll be honest, it's a, it's a pretty cryptic statement. Scholars and commentators are all over the map about what this means. No one really fully 100% knows. And so I'm going to offer you um, what I think is being said here, what I think Jesus is saying, but, but, I, but, but no, I hold it real loosely. Uh, here's what I think. I think the disciples ask, where, Lord? Like, where do we find the strength to live this way? Where do we find the strength to not be like Lot's wife? Where do we find uh, the courage and the ability to hold loosely to the things of this world? And where do we find the strength to cling with a firm grasp to the things of your kingdom, given the world that we live in? And Jesus says in response, just, just like the vultures rally around the dead body. See, Jesus is saying to them, the key to being kingdom people in this era is not rallying around or looking to a Messiah that sits on a throne, but around the one who hangs on a cross. See, the key to living as a disciple in this era is to flock to the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, who actually dies instead of rules. And friends, this is why... Every single week when we gather, we come to the table to share the Lord's Supper. Because it's the way that we remind ourselves and we declare as a community 
the place we find our strength, the place we find our hope, the thing that fuels us to live as kingdom people and to hold loosely to the things of this world and to grasp the things of God is not just like effort and ability and giftedness and by trying really hard. No, the thing that fuels us to be inaugurated kingdom Christ followers is actually the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what fuels us. That's what drives us. That's what enables us to live this way. Where do we find the strength, Lord? We find it at the cross. We find it in the dead body of our Lord. We find it in our risen Savior. And so, this morning as we prepare to come to the table, um, let me ask you to do this. Maybe just be brave enough to be a little awkward and... Look at your hands. Just at some point, I don't have to do it right now, but just look at your hands. And, and as you do, just say, God, what in this world am I holding a little too tightly? What am I grasping at and holding to instead of the kingdom that you have come to offer me? And if God lays anything on your heart, then, then my, my prayer for you would be this, that you would just hold it up to him and you'd say, Lord, loosen my grip. Loosen my grip on this, that I might cling to you. And then when you're ready, come to the table, receive the elements, the body, the blood of Christ. Remind yourself that he's the source of your power and strength. And whenever you're ready, you can just receive those on your own. And we'll close this morning with some worship. But pray with me as we prepare to come to the table. Father, Jesus, you amaze me. You are so good and glorious and brave and radical and you stand toe-to-toe with the powers of this world in a way that remind me of how great you are and I'm reminded this week of how much I need you and God, I see some places in my life where I'm clinging to the things of this world and not to you and God, loosen my grip, loosen our grip. May we be, as a church, a people who are clinging more and more to you, leaning more and more into your kingdom. Use us, God. Change us, fuel us, renew us. Change the world, Lord, through us. And may it all be for your glory. And we pray it in Christ's name.